Today on Pop Talk. So our sleep need does change throughout our lifespan, in particular um, from infancy through adulthood. Once we reach adulthood, even older adults still need the same amount of hours of sleep they needed as a younger adult. It's just harder for them to get it. Pop Talk is a fact and science-based podcast dealing with important health topics, and our focus is to educate, entertain, and inform you on a variety of health issues. And now your host, Dr. Shane Fernando, Dr. Amy Raines Melancholf, Dr. Sam Selby, and Devana Narang. Welcome back to Pop Talk. Thank you so much for joining us again on our adventure through examining the world of population health and important health topics. Today we're going to dive into a very relevant topic sleep. I don't know about you, but I certainly could do with more of it. I'm joined today with my co-host, student Dr. Devana Narang. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Devna Narang, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, our guest speaker today is Dr. Brandy Amarone, and she's going to be teaching us all about sleep. I am uh, Dr. Shane Fernando, a clinical epidemiologist here at UNT Health Science Center. Dr. Roan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Most definitely. Thank you first for having me on. I love talking about sleep, as you can ask most people that know me and most of my colleagues. Um, a little background on myself. I'm a clinical health psychologist by training. I specialize in sleep and circadian rhythms. I am here at the University of North Texas Health Science Center as an associate professor with both the School of Biomedical Sciences and the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. I know that we're going to have a, a lot of fun talking about this because I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic. I sometimes feel like I don't get enough sleep, so um, I'm sure we'll get into that <laughs> in a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit, why is sleep important? Why, I mean, that's a big question, right? But why, why should we care? Most definitely. I think... First and foremost, it's important to understand when we talk about the importance of sleep that it is both a biological need as well as a behavior. And mm. that combo is often um, what is troublesome because we treat it like a behavior, not necessarily a biological need. So we'll do things that hinder us from getting sufficient and consistent sleep, um, or we have things that impact our ability to do so. Um, but sleep is incredibly important in terms of health and wellness. Um, it is associated to when we don't sleep well or we don't sleep consistently, there are numerous deleterious effects across the board. So we have issues with mental health. We have issues with physical health that range from metabolic conditions like diabetes um, to cardiovascular diseases to um, neurological conditions such as dementia and Alzheimer's. Oh, boy. Ooh, that's kind of scary. So if we don't get enough sleep, we're putting ourselves at risk for a lot more uh, pretty nasty conditions. Most definitely. Hmm. So we've, you know, we keep, you know, hearing different numbers growing up. I was told you need your eight hours of sleep a day. And then I heard, you know, for teenagers, it's nine hours and 15. And then I heard when you get older, you only need five hours over the age of a certain, you know, 60 or 70. So I just really wanted to ask, um, could you explain, you know, the number of hours of sleep we need in general? Most definitely. So our sleep need does change throughout our lifespan, in particular 
um, from infancy through adulthood. Once we reach adulthood, even older adults still need the same amount of hours of sleep they needed as a younger adult. It's just harder for them to get it. Um, so some quick guideposts, newborns need about 16 to 18 hours. Um, Two-year-olds still need about 15, 16 hours of sleep. Five-year-olds are going to need um, anywhere from about 12 to 15 if they're still napping. And 10-year-olds need about 10 hours. Teenagers do need about nine and a quarter to nine and a half hours. Got that one right? Yes. <laughs> Didn't um, get it. <laughs> most don't. It's one of the populations that has the biggest impact of insufficient sleep. Um, your adults um, need on average about eight and a half hours. Um, we do have ranges because there's individual differences, and that's important. However, the guidelines or guideposts that we use are really what about, if you consider a normal distribution, about what, you know, most of your population is needing in that age group. Um, you have fewer people on the, the talons that need a little bit less sleep. Um, but those are, those are pretty standard guidelines. So you talked a little bit about Alzheimer's and some other mental, emotional issues that could be compounded by a lack of sleep. I mean, I know that when I am not uh, meeting my sleep regimen, if you will, I tend to have poor memory issues. I get a little more than a little bit crabby, I'm sure, um, you know, and, and just forgetful, just in a bad mood. So how is Alzheimer's and uh, connected to, or dementia connected to sleep? So most definitely. Um, so some of those, um, well, not some, but those experiences that you noted in terms of when I'm not getting sufficient sleep, you notice that your mood is harder to regulate. We tend to focus more on negative things. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have as much energy. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's a big one, right? Oh, big time. Falling asleep at the wheel. Ooh. Which can actually get you ticketed yeah. for drowsy driving, mm -hmm. just like a DUI for drunk driving. It looks very similar. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, so as far as how this builds into something long term, it's important to understand the physiological basis of sleep, like what happens when we sleep. Um, because for us, what happens when we sleep is it goes black and then we wake up in the morning, <laughs> either after a sufficient duration or not, mm -hmm. and we're now supposed to be awake. Um, however, your brain in particular is quite active during sleep. Um, sleep is important for um, restoration of the body as well as the brain. Um, so what we see during sleep is memory consolidation and storing. So we move things from short term that we've learned during the day to long term. So we can now recall it the next day. We also clear out clutter. What that means is we're clearing out the plaques and things that build up that lead to things like dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. And so when we don't get sufficient sleep, our body doesn't repair as it needs to. So it's almost like a uh, sleep mode and repair mode at the same mm -hmm. time. Okay. And cleaning mode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Just literally dusting away the cobwebs, right? You've heard that. I've heard mm -hmm. that phrase sometimes when you're talking about sleep. You're like, oh, you're brushing out your cobwebs, but yeah. That's very relevant yes. here. Hmm, interesting. Do you think that um, you, your your genetic predisposition to those conditions is a, more of a contributor than sleep, or is it does sleep kind of just accelerate the process? So I consider it things like any condition. I often talk to. I speak of it in terms of a dimmer switch. You have a genetic predisposition to it. However. 
um, environmental factors, events that play out are going to turn that dimmer switch on or off and determine potentially what that range is of that dimmer switch. So you can have somebody who is predisposed predisposed to an underlying medical condition or things of that nature, um, but things go well, they don't have any stressors, and they don't develop them. Mm. Insufficient sleep or inconsistent sleep, though, is a stressor on the body. And so it can trigger that predisposition to turning from just a marker to actually on and now like a dimmer switch determines, you know, which range you're sure. going to experience. Sure. So people that, you know, have a predisposition and then compounded with poor sleep, you know, you're just increasing your chances of getting it. Most definitely. Okay. Mm. All right. Talking about risk factors and talking about compounded issues, um, something that's interested me and something I wanted to ask is, you know, there's a lot of people who work graveyard shifts, you know, medical students and residents working overnight, you know, that change in circadian rhythm. Is that a predisposing factor to any of these diseases? What's the effect of switching the circadian rhythm? Shift workers have some of the highest percentages of medical and physical and mental health issues due to shifting the circadian clock. So if we consider what our circadian clock is, it sits in our brain. It's housed in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is just a fun word to say because it sounds like <laughs> supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, but it's actually something in our brain. Now, that's where our master clock sits. That master clock is important for regulating all the clocks without within the body. So throughout our body, we have clocks that help us with timing of cells doing things, releasing hormones, different things like that. When we shift our clock, meaning we start doing a shift work, and say we're going to do that shift work for about a week, it takes about 24 to 48 hours for those peripheral clocks to catch up to our new timing. Because that master clock regulates it. So when it gets updated, it sends that new time out to all the other clocks. This is often why if you think even just outside of shift work on Monday, most of us are like, Mondays suck. It's not that Mondays suck. We feel like we're jet lagged because we've slept in Saturday and Sunday. And now we're trying to get up at an earlier time on Monday. And it's literally like we travel time zones without actually going anywhere. So but Wednesday is yeah. the real Monday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, think about it. Wednesday, you start to feel better. It, I mean, it's hump day because it's middle of the week, but also you're over the hump of feeling like crap, but now you're on like the positive side. The only problem also, is... Also, you're closer to Friday, so we don't, so we don't really bit, know. A little bit of both, yeah. A little bit of both. <laughs> but if you look... Yeah, right? Yes, totally. But it's also possibly looking forward to that Friday of staying up later and sleeping in on Saturday. Hmm. I mean, I do like to catch up, quote unquote, on a deprived sleep over the week. But you can't know, really catch up. I know, up. you can't really Ooh, catch that up. That was our right? next question. I know. That's a good one. Right? Uh, okay, so let's talk about that. Like some days, I don't know about y'all, but I might have five hours of sleep, four hours of sleep, then suddenly seven hours of sleep. Uh, that we, I know it's not a net calculus, right? We're not looking at a week and we need X amount of hours per week put into sleep. And it's distributed how it's distributed. It's more about we're trying to be consistent, right? So uh, in other words, and I'm, I'm trying to keep us aware that our uh, audiences also, not just health professionals, but our general population, mm-hmm. our community. So when you're talking about the amount of hours you need to sleep, we try and keep ourselves to an actual number every day. Yes. But what if we can't? So... 
what if you can't? Part of the what if you can is really looking at how are you prioritizing sleep? Often we don't prioritize sleep as this is a pinnacle. I need to like this activity must occur on a daily basis and then I will schedule everything else around it. We schedule everything else and then go, oh, well, today looks like I can fit about six hours in. Tomorrow, oh, I might get that seven and a half. But Saturday, I'm going to get the 10. Right. But it's I think for a lot of people, right, when, you, when you're thinking about that, if we're talking about budgeting sleep mm-hmm. um, as a priority and centering life around sleep as a priority, I think that's a hard thing for anyone to really grasp because it feels like you're not productive. Yes. But if you but this is one of those things, if you consider productivity, how are you measuring productivity? And if we're considering what the pros of getting sufficient sleep are. So for a kid, this can be like what I told my two kids when they were younger. When you And what I tell clients and patients when I'm working with families is the only time you grow is during deep sleep. Like that's when your body produces growth hormone. So if you want to grow, it's not happening during the day. It's going to happen during sleep. And we spend on average about a third of our day sleeping. We should. That's, that's the relative average. Um, it's also important to understand that sometimes it is hard to budget sleep, right? It is hard to put that in. But it's also setting boundaries. Part of why we don't budget sleep is we don't set adequate boundaries or balance in our life. And so we either don't have enough time or we finally get to the end of our day because we've spent so much time doing all these other tasks we piled on that was probably not awesome because we're now super late and we're like, I want some me time. So instead of going to sleep, though, we're like, but I haven't had any fun yet or done anything that Mm -hmm. was just me. So we'll stay up and push off sleep to do it. Revenge bedtime. Yes. <laughs> what is revenge bedtime? Oh. That's this act, the act of staying up because yeah. you want to be alone and you know watch your favorite TV show even though you're dead tired. I didn't mm-hmm. know it was a phrase. Hmm. Yes. So it's become a lot more common, especially as we've continued to try to increase productivity and add on tasks and we have you know numerous things being asked of us. But the thing to consider too is how efficient are you when you aren't sleeping well? Hmm. Not great. No, no. No, not great. Um, it not also, the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> no, it causes distractibility, poor concentration. We might have to redo something multiple times. We get distracted, so then we're actually not focusing on mm-hmm. said task. So what I also talk to lots of people about is the trade-off. If you're going to spend two hours not really able to focus while you're studying or doing that project at work, but you could take an hour away, add it to your sleep, and then be productive during that one hour. Hmm. What's it really going to cost you to do that? Nothing. Actually, it would probably be better because you also have to factor in the compounding effect of getting insufficient or inconsistent sleep. And when I say inconsistent, I don't just mean inconsistent duration. I'm also meaning inconsistent quality, right? timing and quality. Hmm. Um, so it's Understanding, too, there's multiple level or layers to sleep. We don't just talk duration. We also talk about that consistency because that feeds back to your master clock because the time you wake up and get your first dose of light syncs that clock. So that consistency and timing is important, but also the consistency and duration. Because while you might feel better on a Saturday or Sunday after oversleeping or getting that extra sleep, think about how you've engaged with the world Monday through Friday on inconsistent sleep. It impacts 
you and your mental health, your physical health, because you can't repair the body for those five days of getting insufficient sleep or inconsistent. It also impacts your relationships with other people. Think about it. If you're moody and you're engaging in that way, <laughs> we're moodiest with the people that we're closest to. So a lot of times there's an increase in relationship problems. There's an increase in parent-child issues when sleep is insufficient for either party. And often it's both, especially if a kiddo has a sleep issue. Um, but you have to factor in, you know, what it's truly cost you Monday through Friday to operate that way. And those are things you can't catch up on. So now to take someone who's like, okay, they're talking about this as a, um, okay, I'm trying to be a little bit better about sleep. But then you have to say, okay, I only have had four hours of sleep every night for the weekdays. And I'm feeling exhausted, but I know I need to recover and then they sleep way too much over the weekend. Is that healthy? Long-term, no. It's not. Like when we look at studies to see, and even what a newer, well, it's not newer, but bimodal sleeping or biphasic sleeping. So, Can you tell us what that is? So it's um, cutting your sleep period up, which it should be a single chunk based on how we are biologically. Instead, they'll sleep for, say, they get a total of eight hours in the day. They sleep for four hours, get up, do things. Then they sleep for another four hours. The problem with that is our brains don't operate in a way where it goes, oh, you slept the first four hours of your sleep period earlier. Let me start you where you left off mm -hmm. for the second one which means you actually reduce some of your sleep stages, in particular REM, because it happens predominantly during the latter half of the night. And so when we cut our sleep period short, what it's actually doing is cutting off your REM. And that's what you need to clean out the cobwebs. Mm, your rapid eye movement. Yes, so rapid eye movement sleep is your REM sleep. Your deep sleep happens during the first part of the night, which is great for growth hormone release for um, kiddos, for um, growing and development, as well as memory um, storage and things of that nature. But that latter half of the night with rapid eye movement or REM sleep is imperative for cleaning out the cobwebs and that kind of thing. But our bodies don't operate in a way where it goes, oh, I took the first half earlier. Now I'm going to do the second half. It starts from the beginning and starts that sleep period again. Mm. Okay. I have a question. I guess I'm talking about myself and anyone, <laughs> actually everybody who, you know, you know, doesn't get a ton of sleep all the time. So let's say, you know, unfortunately you've had a hard week, you've slept five or six hours or four or whatever, five days, and you do that, you know, 15, 12 to 15 hour stretch, it, you know? So during that time that you're doing this, I know you said it's not good long term and we shouldn't make it a habit. Totally understand. But what is happening? What is what is going on in this 12 to 15 hours? Are you getting increased REM? Like, um, like what's going on during that really extra long sleep? So the really extra long sleep is, in essence, your body trying to let off the sleep pressure. So as so, there's two processes that help regulate sleep. One of them is the circadian rhythm or the master circadian clock um, that I've already mentioned. The other is your homeostatic sleep drive. And your homeostatic sleep drive, the way it operates is the longer you're awake, you build up what's called a denison in the brain. That um, is, in essence, sleep pressure. It's going to help activate the sleep-promoting pathways. Um, and consider it like a pressure tank. The longer you're awake, the more pressure you build. When you sleep, that pressure dissipates. Um, in particular, when you get deep sleep, it dissipates. Um, 
And deep sleep happens during the first half of the sleep period. When we are so exhausted, though, we build up such sleep pressure that that's part of why we can sustain sleep for longer period over the weekend um, than what we normally would if you were sleeping consistently. Um, And recognizing it is hard to sleep a normal duration, in particular when we haven't for so long. We're so used to cutting our sleep short on the weekdays, so start off baby steps. Slowly start to expand your weekday sleep duration so you can also accommodate and adjust to that shift. Most often we try to do things in like this huge overarching, like I'm going to be awesome at this and I'm going to change it all. And then you get into day three and you're like, this is for the birds. I can't keep doing this. This is like way too much. And we just stop. So take baby steps. As long as you're still producing change, you're still moving towards that bigger goal, you're going to get there. And you're going to feel better for it because the other issue is we don't often realize how we actually truly feel when we get good sleep because we consistently shortchange ourselves. And we even don't feel awesome after a super long oversleep. We often can wake up with kind of what we call sleep inertia where it's you wake up out of a stage you're not necessarily supposed to. So you feel really groggy oh, and yeah. disoriented. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Feel worse sometimes when I sleep mm-hmm. too long. Also, I sometimes feel nauseous, too. It's very strange. So when we sleep, our night hormone, melatonin, comes out to play. Melatonin is not a sleep hormone. It does help promote sleep in the terms of when it comes out, it helps our body know that it should be doing sleep-conducive activities that occur at nighttime. Um, But when melatonin is out, it also suppresses CERT, which is our serotonin transporter. And most of our receptors for serotonin are actually in our gut. So when melatonin is out, meaning we've stayed asleep, we suddenly wake up and it's, you know, melatonin is still out to play, we can actually feel nauseous um, until the melatonin um, decreases, which means you get into bright light, it suppresses melatonin, and then CERT will come out and start transporting the serotonin out of the, just free floating from the gut. Got it. Immediately to my balcony. <laughs> yes. After a long sleep. <laughs> but it's, it's true. It's one of the things that we found with our individuals who have like circadian phase disorders and things of that nature. It's hard for them to sometimes shift earlier because they do experience a lot of nausea and things because their system is delayed. Um, and so I work a lot with them in terms of um, getting into bright light, suppressing the melatonin as soon as possible, um, and really working with them on trying to introduce food as soon as they reasonably can but not so soon right after when they're really nauseous because typically it doesn't go well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not great. So uh, I want to pivot to a, uh, an associated topic, snoring, right? I mean, a lot of people experience it or have heard it uh, in some <laughs> way, right? Fair. Like a lot of yes. people, like for myself, um, I had severe snoring that turned out to be sleep apnea, but um, I had no idea how loud it was until my niece very vocally told me how loud I was being. Um, so what is snoring? What uh, What's causing it? And how do can people either deal with it for themselves or help their partner deal with it so their sleep is not disrupted? Most definitely. So part of the reason we don't acknowledge snoring or most people don't recognize it or do anything about it is if you consider socially and culturally, how do we signify sleep? In any show you watch, cartoon. Snoring. Yes, snoring. You see Zs and it's making sounds. When we sleep, it just should be breathing. That's the normal sound that should be associated with sleeping. We might breathe a little deeper during some stages, a little lighter during other stages, but it should just be breathing. However, snoring 
is kind of iconic for sound sleep. Sound sleep, though, really doesn't mean sound sleep. (laughs) Uh, Snoring is indicative of some kind of obstruction that's occurring during the sleep period. Um, Now, snoring alone can just be primary. You can just have somebody that snores. They don't have what we call obstructive sleep apnea, um, which means that the snoring um, or the obstruction is associated with a decrease in airflow, um, which signifies that apnea um, condition. So snoring in and of itself, again, they're breathing in, they're making sound when they do. If it's associated, which is a very common symptom of obstructive sleep apnea, um, what that means is you have an individual who, when they inhale, there's an obstruction, it's reducing airflow to at least 50% to all the way to indicate that they are having that cessation. It reduces oxygen flow to the brain. The brain kind of freaks out going, oh my gosh. It's a little bit of choking. There can be choking or gasping as well. Um, And in essence, what that is, is the brain is waking them up or arousing them. They don't typically fully wake up. Like most people with sleep apnea don't even realize how often their brain is popping to wakefulness during sleep period uh, because it just pops up enough to trigger the brain to breathe again, you know, to help reengage muscle tonin the um, airway and allow them to breathe again. Um, Now, as far as treatment goes, if it's primary snoring, you can often use things like nasal strips or things of those nature um, to help minimize some of the obstruction and increase the airflow. If it is an apnea situation, so like obstructive sleep apnea, nasal strips are not going to do it. You'll have to seek out alternatives, which when you seek those out, it reduces the snoring, which helps the bed partner which is always a bonus. So then you don't have that bed partner having insomnia symptoms because the other partner has obstructive sleep <laughs> apnea issues. Um, it's also scary for the bed partner when they see, a, you know, your partner gasping for air or pausing and breathing for 30 seconds or even 15 seconds. It can be quite freaky for the bed partner as well. So a lot of times they become hypervigilant trying to make sure the person doesn't die during sleep. Um, the brain eventually cues them to wake up, but it can have some pretty nasty um, long-term outcomes if it's not treated. Um, treatment ranges from a, what we call a mandibular device. So it's a device that you put in that just helps keep the um, jaw jutted out slightly to open the airway to um, a positive airway pressure CPAP, BiPAP is the common names for um, machine. There's also newer um, therapies. There's now a daytime therapy that's been FDA approved as well as a surgical implant that activates the um, vagal nerve to try to keep the airway open during sleep. So similar to like a pacemaker um, is the insertion for that. Oh, wow. I, have, I yeah, haven't that heard of new. that yet. Yeah. I've just heard of uh, on the medical side for our medical listeners – I've heard of, you know, CPAP, BiPAP, like that's what you have to use, CPAP, that's what you have to use, need a positive pressure, keep your airway open, but that's very interesting. It's the most effective and honestly, um, I mean, it, it's less I'll, invasive for sure. Yes, yes. If you have someone that's not wanting, I mean, the surgery is very new. Um, the daytime device is very, very new within the last year. Um and that one, I think, is for mild. I don't think it goes up to moderate or severe. There's also okay. lifestyle changes that can happen. If you have somebody with obstructive sleep apnea, one of the um, contributing factors can be weight. Now, treating the weight, meaning reducing the weight, obviously improves other health factors as well. It will often reduce some of the severity, but not completely get rid of the obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. It's it's interesting that how uh, well I mean I'll, I'll give you a little bit of what I felt I had gone through most of my life 
feeling pretty drowsy and thinking that was kind of normal. And uh, the first time I used a CPAP, I brought it home. It was in the afternoon. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a, a little bit of a power nap, check this thing out, see how, how it goes. I woke up the next morning <laughs> at oh, 7 wow. in the morning. I was like, oh, my gosh. I felt like a new person. Mm-hmm. Um, it was amazing, right? Uh, but I know you talked about the nasal strips. Mm-hmm. Now, a common uh, bed partner treatment of somebody who is snoring is to push them onto their side and uh, kind of like so that – and prop them up so they prop don't get on their so back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. Does that help or does that make the the snorer sleep worse? It depends. So we have things with obstructive sleep apnea. You can have positional obstructive sleep apnea, which means that in a certain position, they are going to experience more apnea events or only in that position do they experience some. Um, even someone who has obstructive sleep apnea throughout any position, typically um, sleeping supine, so back, front sleeping, um, Back so or flat front. on your back, flat on your front. Yes. So supine is back. Um, I'm blanking right. on the word for front. But anyway, if you're back sleeping or front sleeping, typically those are the most significant um, for apnea episodes um, just because there's more of a compromise in the airway. Um, you can also have sleep stage types of apnea where somebody only experienced apnea episodes during like REM because we have um, full body um, tone loss, muscle tone loss, except for the eyes and the diaphragm. Yeah, so essentially your whole body just mm-hmm. stops moving. Yes. Almost like in a state of paralysis. Yes. Um, and so that makes it harder to maintain the airway. Um, as far as does it help, does it hinder the the apnea experiencer, it could be disruptive, but most of the time if they're not adequately treating it, they're so sleepy that they don't normally notice too terribly that somebody is trying to prop them up to keep them <laughs> from laying on their back. Um, it's more effective to actually treat it versus the bed partner trying to act as the prop. <laughs> um, but we do do positional therapies. If it's specifically one position that the person experiences it, insurance often um, won't necessarily cover that for um, treatment with a CPAP because they don't have it throughout the whole night for every sleep stage. So you can do positional therapies um, to try to help train the person to sleep only in a certain position. What about, uh, so when we're talking about technologies, right, um, are there any devices, anything that's new on the market that might promote good sleep? That someone may, yeah, I've seen some interesting things like the, ooh, look at this clock with the aromatherapy and the light that glows at sunrise or um, this uh, little device that will slip under your mattress to determine whether or not your sleep is good or the little nor the rings that you just figure out, are you having a good sleep or even your smartwatches? Do any of those work? Are they useful? Should we ignore them? Are you skeptical <laughs> or a believer? Um, so, no, that's a great question. I think as humans, we love to collect data on ourselves. We we love having data on – it makes us, you know, whether we know what a to – A little bit of control, right? Yes. <laughs> and whether we know what to do with it or not, it still makes us feel better. Mm. Um, as far as a device telling you if you're sleeping well or not, I would argue that it's actually better to actually ask yourself, how refreshed do I feel when I wake up? So give yourself about five minutes to like fully rouse. How refreshed do I feel? A device is not going to necessarily appropriately tell you that. Mm. And depending on the device, there are some that are um, validated. Most of them, however, do not leverage algorithms that are validated to be measuring sleep. So they're not 
appropriate for the individual. Yes. Like it's, it's, it'll give you rough numbers, but it's not individualized to you. Most definitely. And it's mm-hmm. often underrepresentative of what the sleep need is. So some of the struggle I often come across is someone going, well, this device tells me I only need four and a half hours. And I'm like, but how long did you spend in bed? And did you feel refreshed? Because the devices are often intending to pick up like physical activity and things of that nature. And we do move during most of our sleep stages. Um, If we have bed partners, their movements get picked up as well. And bed partners isn't just human bed partners, furry bed partners. Um, So if you have dogs, those kind of things, or cats, they can also impact sleep. Um, If you have kids, them coming in and out can. Yeah, Um, that can, I can imagine. So my biggest thing, I mean, the takeaways for the device is tracking your sleep. Yes, awesome. The things to check for, though, is not necessarily does it tell me if I have good quality sleep. That's really a self-assessment. Am am I feeling refreshed? But they can help with kind of general ideas of parameters. When did I go to bed? When did I get up? How consistent am I maintaining my schedule? Um, I do leverage some technologies like lights or actual alarm clocks, which some of my teens are flabbergasted that there's actually freestanding alarm clocks. <laughs> um, not connected to your phone. Yeah. Yes. Um, to help improve sleep um, because they're useful in helping with consistency of timing and light exposure. Um, but you can also do those without an app. Yeah. The most the ones I've seen are just movement-based, like yeah. the free apps mm-hmm. or the ones that I see. Um, like you said, didn't isn't always accurate. Um, just like another question, you know, um, for those people listening, you know, who have insomnia or have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, you know, you're the expert here. So are there any simple tips and tricks they can try um, in relation to sleep hygiene that you would recommend? So most definitely. So healthy sleep behaviors. So how I kind of divide this up is your sleep patterns, as well as the behaviors you do to help prep you for sleep. And behaviors you do to help prep you for sleep aren't just right before bed. They're the daytime behaviors as well. So if we think about sleep parameters, same bat time, same bat channel, consistency. So consistent duration, consistent timing. Um, Your Goldilocks, knowing what your actual sleep need is and meeting it. Not too much, not too little, but just right. Well, how do you figure that out? Ah, that's a great question. Mm. So if you... Allow yourself like a spring break that week and you catch up on any missed sleep the first couple of days and then you start following a consistent pattern, you know, sleeping, you'll start to figure out what your need is. Another thing is just start with what is the average for the adult. If you're already grossly under that, start adding 15 minutes every week or every three to four days to your sleep schedule until you reach that sweet spot of if I add 15 more minutes, I now spend that awake versus sleeping and then you just move back to that previous one. So, for instance, if you're at, you know, eight hours, you add 15 more minutes, and you're like, no, I'm spending it awake for the week, go back to the eight hours, and that's probably your sweet spot. Um, efficiency. So time in bed should equal time spent asleep, give or take 15, 20 minutes, um, because that's what the average person needs to fall asleep. If we consider um, other types of factors, um, one of them is what you're doing in bed. For adults, that should be sleep and sex. For youngers, it should just be sleep. Nothing else should be happening in bed. So you move all electronics, other things out of your bed so you don't associate. So no reading, no looking at tablets, no watching TV, just sleep. Yes. So what if you wanted to, you know, some people like to wind down before bed. They just get in bed and they're like, read something and then. 
their brain starts to associate bed with not just sleep, which means that bed will no longer just cue sleep for them and makes them more predisposed to developing insomnia. What I encourage instead is have that wind down activity. You want it, so that's another factor in good tips and habits is we, as kids, are promoted to have like a bedtime routine. As adults, we kind of lose that because we're now in charge of our schedule. And why do I need a bedtime routine? I'm just gonna kill over when I'm finally tired. It'll be fine. But a bedtime routine actually helps promote sleepiness because it gives you a pause from whatever the other activities you've been doing. And it behaviorally chains you doing the four to five activities, brush my teeth, go to the bathroom, take a you know medication if you need to mm -hmm. at night, drink water, whatever. Have a wind down activity that you do for about 10, 15 minutes out of bed. You can be in the bedroom if you need to, but it needs to be in dim light. It doesn't need to be something stimulating. So personally, I can't read a book I want or do a puzzle or paint or anything right before bed because I will not put it down. I will insist I need to continue doing that and not go to bed. Especially if so, it's a good book. Yeah, yeah no <laughs> joke. Yes, most definitely. And then I can also factor in, even though it's like 3 a.m. in the morning, I only have like 10% left according to my Kindle. I just need to read it now. It's only 10%, right? Um, but have a wind-down activity. Um, that can range from yoga to stretches to deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, a mindfulness activity, coloring, paint by numbers for a few minutes, anything like that, but you want to do it in dim light. You don't want to be overstimulating, and then you pop into bed. So for some of our listeners who, you know, may not have the technology, may not have access to, you know, costly activities, uh, just take you a few minutes to just take some deep breathing. Um, what else would you suggest? So deep breathing, you can look up videos on YouTube on how to do that. Um, progressive muscle relaxation, which is another form of deep breathing, but it adds a layer where you're tensing, untensing muscle groups. Um, count cards. Hmm. Read a textbook. Hmm. It makes you sleepy. It does. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I be, being a lifelong learner, I love learning, but textbooks. They do get yes. a little dry. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing is you're wanting to avoid things that are going to stimulate you because it's not just the light exposure you get right before bed. It's also the stimulating activities you do because you can turn the brightness down on your phone. But if you're playing a fun game on it, are you really going to want to put it down? Mm. One more level. Exactly. One more level. One more. Oh, it's only like two minutes. It's only going to take two minutes for me to do that. I'll just do that again. Oh, you know. Yes. Um, even social media or things, even when you're just scrolling through some of that, it's the stimulation that you're getting and that activation of the brain. Um, and so we found that it's not just light exposure before bed. It is also those stimulating activities that make it harder to wind down and fall asleep. For those of us who watch Netflix or Hulu or <laughs> HBO, not recommended. <laughs> not right before bed because it can activate the light exposure, but also it's stimulating and it's fun. And we We'll go like, oh, we'll just watch one more episode or just a little bit of the next episode. It'll be fine. Um, the other factor is when we're falling asleep, considering your sleep environment. Um, if you're falling asleep with the TV on, but it's on a timer or music on or um, a light on or things of that nature, those things, any changes in the sleep environment can impact whether you stay asleep um, or how easy it is to fall asleep. So typically you want, we can talk about the sleep environment like a cave. You want it cool, dark, and quiet. Quiet does not mean noiseless, but it means white noise, not the ocean waves or oh, so not the, birds. So sound, uh, sound machines, like um, just it should be something like a fan or yeah, just a very yes. neutral, constant buzzing. Yes. Hmm. And the reason for that is because fluctuations in it can promote us to wake up. 
Um, I have noticed that. I tried a uh, sleep app, a sleep sound app, because I like, I I can't sleep with absolute silence. And I noticed that because this was a free version, Mm. it went in volume in waves. And I've been a little bit crabby because (laughs) my sleep has Mm -hmm. been a little bit disrupted. Fans work awesome. I don't like cold air blowing on me, so my fan literally points in a corner in my bedroom. And when I travel, Mm -hmm. there is an app on my phone that I can make it sound like any fan I want it to. So I carry it with me. Another thing is the light levels in your room. We sleep best when it's dark. So some of us are more sensory um, sensitive than others. I know for me, the um, (laughs) smoke detector light is like a beacon of welcoming Actually, annoyance more for me in the middle of the night. Everyone, most people I talk to, they're like, "No, it's fine." I'm like, "No, it's like the brightest thing in the room. It's terrible." Um, so I have blackout curtains, but I also sleep with an eye mask on. Hmm. That well, that makes sense. I mean, small little changes. Uh, temperature: cold, hot, lots of blankets, few blankets, hard pillow, soft pillow. Tell us more. Yes. So pillow uh, mattress, those are to taste. So a lot of times it's finding the right fit for you. Um, Depending on any underlying medical conditions, you might need a specific kind of mattress just to help um, or a pillow. But you definitely want to make sure that there's no like creaks in the neck or things like that nature on the pillows. As far as temperature, we sleep best when it's cool. Um, Cool? Or so what do you mean by cool? Cold? Like 65 to 68 degrees. Pretty cool. Yes. Um, understanding though it's hard for us to regulate our body temperature our body temperature decreases during the night and we reach our lowest body core body temperature in the middle of our night so you want to be careful you're not too cold because if as that starts to drop if you're not sufficiently at least covered it might wake you up because now you're too cold Um, but we definitely have a harder time sleeping when it is too hot That's true. I've, I've woken up like, oh, it's yeah, hot it's in just here. Yeah, like it's sweating, sweaty. throw off all mm-hmm. the sheets and just, ugh. Yes. Mm. Um, I guess just another question. I know we, ta- we touched on this a little bit. Um, I said, you know, as you get older, the sleep needs, you know, might slightly decrease, not this like crazy amount. I think it was like nine hours-ish to like eight-ish. As we get older, is there anything we can do to help promote more sleep? or help us stay asleep longer? I know it's more difficult, but how do we combat that? Most definitely. What makes it more difficult as we age is we have a decrease in our deep sleep. So our delta waves, which is the waves, our brain waves that happen during deep sleep, there is a decrease in um, the peaks and valleys of them in essence. Um, And that decrease in deep sleep makes it harder for us to sustain sleep. So that's where it becomes really important to protect your sleep environment. Um, because if we're not in deep sleep as long, noises, light can become more impactful. Also recognizing underlying medical conditions also impact sleep. So making sure that those are treated appropriately. And a lot of what I work with um, older adults is minimizing the impact when they do have to wake up that it has on them in returning to sleep. Um, Because often it's that subjective evaluation of, oh my gosh, I spent so long awake in the middle of the night, that is the most impactful. it's what I call perception. I mean, insomnia is largely a hypervigilance and perception disorder because we're perceiving that huge amount of wakefulness that might not be huge, but it feels like it is. So working on those um, aspects can help to um, maintain someone's sleep, even as they age. Um, and just recognizing that there might be some disturbances, but not compensating for it by engaging in napping 
because once we do that, it starts that vicious cycle of kind of that um, biphasic sleeping where we use a nap period as kind of almost part of our sleep period. And then it's harder for us to fall asleep when we need to at nighttime. So actually, that brings up a very important topic that we didn't talk about, napping. Naps, power naps, those that we keep talking about or, you know, whenever we're trying to be more productive. Oh, I'm going to take a 10-minute power nap. Is there such a thing as a power nap? There is, but it's not good long term. Mm. Um, Now, in a crunch, you've had, you know, things have just been off. You haven't been able to maintain your sleep schedule. What I typically recommend for a power nap is 20 minutes or less from the time you intend to lay down, not when you think you fell asleep, 20 minutes or less when you lay down, before 2 o'clock. Because when we— Before 2 o'clock. Very specific. Yeah. The reason for it is we let off sleep pressure when we nap. We also stop our building of sleep pressure because we're now asleep versus awake. And the only time we build pressure to sleep is during that wakeful time. And it takes us about twice as long to build pressure as it does for us to alleviate it. And so it's almost like a triple impact when we take a nap because we're letting it off and we're not building it during that period of time. Um, So if you keep it for about 20 minutes or less, it also means when you wake from it, you're likely to feel refreshed versus going into a deep sleep part of your sleep period. Mm -hmm. And that's when you wake up like after you take about the hour and a half, two hour nap and you wake up, you're like, oh, my gosh, why did I even lay down? This is miserable. That is because you're trying to wake up from deep sleep. If you keep it to that 20 minutes um, or less, you're going to sufficiently alleviate some of that pressure, but you're also not going to get into deep sleep. So you're waking from a more sleep, more weight conducive sleep stage, if that makes sense. What if, I guess you said, like, what if, you know, in that 20 minutes, you said reduce sleep pressure. What if you can't fall asleep? You just get back up? You get back up. Is lying down, closing your eyes, will that even reduce sleep pressure? You're likely micro sleeping. So microsleeping is where part of the brain is actually shutting down to sleep, but not the full brain. So we don't experience like the full, I fell asleep. Yeah. Hmm. Um, But yes, resting can help. Um, And it's important to understand too, like what are you doing potentially that's impacting your ability to get sufficient sleep? Are we, you know, engaging in that, you know, adverse behaviors before bedtime, pushing our bedtime off, knowing we still have to get up for work, we get up for work and then we feel miserable so we nap. Or are you allowing yourself to unintentionally nap? So this is where sitting down to like watch a show or do something like that and you nod off for like 20, 30 minutes during it. And it's almost like you're taking your pre-game sleep before you actually get into bed. (laughs) The only problem is it's impacting when you're actually going to be able to fall asleep for good for that sleep period that night. Hmm, That makes sense. So try and stay a a little bit awake and bank your sleeping into your full night. Yes. Um, most often it's better if you just go to bed a little bit earlier, not a ton, like not two hours earlier, that's going to be awful on your sleep schedule as well, but go to bed 30 minutes early instead of taking the 30 minute power nap earlier in the day. That's a good point. Um, is there anything that you would like our audience to take away? Now, keeping in mind that we have, uh, healthcare providers, physicians, uh, students, uh, and the general public listening to this podcast. What are some things that you'd like them to remember most? I think remembering most the consistency, duration, um, as best as possible, identifying potential things that can impact sleep. And if you feel like you have a sleep disorder, reaching out to a healthcare professional. 
um, to be able to get checked. Most sleep disorders don't require an overnight sleep study. So it's not a matter of, you know, you then happen to go in for a sleep study, things of that nature. It's really based on self-report. Um, but understanding that the impact of not treating it is by far worse than doing what you're doing now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Rohn. We really appreciate having you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. All right. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on this very important episode. And I hope that you actually get some good sleep and take some of the advice that Dr. Brandy M. Rohn has provided for us. And hopefully uh, you'll feel better every day. If you are enjoying our episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on any major streaming platforms. If you would like to reach out and share your thoughts with us, you can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poptalkunthsc or Instagram at, or at Instagram at poptalkunthsc. We would love to hear from you. Um, hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you join us in the next episode. And just as an additional aside, we're adding a new format to our Pop Talk uh, platform. It's something called TLDL. Too long, didn't listen. We know that some of you might not particularly have the time to listen to an almost hour-long episode. But we have a short bite-sized episode coming right next to this particular episode. So you will be able to listen to a short-form version and hopefully get some good information from that as well. We thank you so much, and we look forward to having you in our next episode. Pop Talk is a production of the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and is produced at the UNT Health Science Center in Fort Worth. To learn more, please visit our website at unthsc.edu.